All right. So last week, we thought about the person of Christ, who Jesus is. And we came to the conclusion that Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person, that hypostatic union that we talked about, and will be so forever. And we're not going to move past that so much as we're going to build on that. So now that we've established Jesus's identity, we'll want to keep that in the back of our minds and really in the forefront of our minds as we think about the work of Christ, what Jesus continues to do or did and continues to do as our Savior. So Jesus's work obviously inaugurated when he takes on flesh in the virgin birth and then through his uh, earthly ministry and ascension, but even the, the, what he does for us now as uh, the one who intercedes for us. Uh, so now that we have set the trajectory correctly by identifying from the Bible who Jesus is, we're going to follow that trajectory to see what it is when he is sent on his mission that he does and continues to do. Because Jesus is only able to do the things that we'll discuss today precisely because his identity is that of the God-man, as God the Son incarnate. Now, historically, the church has explained the meaning of our Lord's work by using the concepts of prophet, priest, and king. You're probably familiar with that. Uh, Jesus acts as the ultimate prophet and our great high priest and the sovereign king of the universe as he accomplishes our redemption, brings our salvation. Now, this isn't the only way to explain what Jesus does as our mediator. Uh, so in the Bible, things don't come strictly categorized by something Jesus does as a prophet, something Jesus does as a priest, something Jesus does as a king. So he's cast in all of those molds, but we don't have to worry about getting the taxonomy exactly correct because the idea is that he embodies those and fulfills those expectations from the Old Testament, but he does so in a way that they coalesce into the one person. Uh, so for instance, in Jesus acting as our priest, he demonstrates his right to rule as king. So as he is laying his life down, he is showing his authority over all things, including death, by his dying and suffering and defeating sin, removing the grounds of, of our enmity with God and then rising again. So they all kind of go together. Interestingly enough, this week, Greg Gilbert at T4G gave a talk on Jesus as priest and king and how those two things actually fit together. And as the Old Testament comes together, you see them, uh, you see them coming to, to come together in one person. So that'd be really helpful. Actually, it's kind of a rehash of a chapter in his book, What is the Gospel, which you're probably mostly familiar with, that is called, I, I don't know what it's called, but it's about kingdom and gospel. So helpful meditations there. But it is helpful, these, uh, this designation of prophet, priest, and king, uh, to get some handles for understanding and describing the work of Christ. So it'll help us to set our expectations of, uh, set in, uh, in expectations, um, I just read Brad's comment, uh, our expectations of what Christ does from the whole storyline of Scripture uh, as he fulfills those Old Testament institutions and roles of prophet, priest, and king. And of course, as we do so, we're not going to be able to exhaust every aspect of Jesus' work, uh, but I hope that using this format will give us some ideas to hang our hats on, some hooks, so to speak, that we can look into uh, as we see the big picture of who Jesus is. Um, so we'll work through that idea of, uh, of, of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we'll just take one by one. And uh, as always, if you have any comments or questions, please leave those in the chat, and I'll try to to go back afterwards 
Um, and uh, and we, can, we can think about those things. Today's uh, material is a bit shorter, even though that never actually works out. I always think, okay, it's short, we'll cut it down, and then uh, it ends up being wicked long again. So first, let's think about Jesus's work as prophet. Maybe something that is less emphasized than his work as priest and king. So a prophet in the Old Testament was simply someone who spoke the words of God to God's people, sort of God's mouthpiece. So that when a prophet spoke on behalf of God, his words carried the same authority as if God had spoken directly. God speaking through the prophet, saying, thus says the Lord. And without the prophetic ministry, we have to remember that God's people would be left with no real knowledge of God. So prophets tell people the truth about who God is because we need God to reveal himself to us. And he has revealed himself to us in the prophets in the Old Testament. So Moses, who's really the Bible's first major prophet, said that there would be another prophet to come who would be like him, who would lead God's people in the knowledge of God. That's in Deuteronomy 15, 15 through 18. And from the New Testament, we know that in Acts 3, that prophet that Moses looked forward to is identified as Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about Jesus as prophet, of course, he is not merely a prophet like, say, a Muslim would say, where there's Uh, They have respect for Jesus as a prophet, but not God. They stop short of his true identity. Now, because we know Jesus is a different kind of prophet in at least two ways. So first, Jesus is actually the one that all the prophecies and the prophets in the Old Testament pointed towards. So he is not only the, the agent of revelation, he's the subject of that revelation. And secondly, While the prophets in the Old Testament would say the phrase over and over again, thus says the Lord, that is a lifesaver on the Hebrew exam in seminary. I'll just say when you get the thus, you're like, okay, great. Says says the thus says the Lord. Uh, Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, you've heard Old Testament law. I'm saying to you in fulfillment of that this, so that he claims the very authority of God as God's prophet. So Jesus is the one that reveals God in his own perfect humanity through his obedience and through his words, his message, his sermons that he gives. And he also, we remember, reveals God perfectly because he himself is God. So that if we want to know what God is like, to see something of the nature and the character of the Trinity, we need only to look to God, the Son incarnate. As we uh, read in John, he says, I and the Father are one. And uh, in, uh, in John as well, the disciples say, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, You've missed the boat here. You haven't gotten the point. I and the Father are one. If you have seen the Father, you have seen me. So that we can see Jesus as prophet telling the truth about who God is, showing us what God is like, really opening up the the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, by the sending of the Son. If Jesus doesn't come in the flesh, then we don't know as we do now that God is triune. Because the Son, the, the Father is revealed by sending the Son and by sending the Spirit together with the Son. Uh, so Jesus' work as prophet is absolutely uh, our only way to know God in a saving manner. And we see that his work as a prophet didn't end whenever he ascended into heaven. So it wasn't as if Jesus was a prophet, uh, fulfilled this prophet role from his birth to his death and resurrection. But even now, Jesus' main prophetic ministry comes in the giving of the Spirit. So when Jesus died, he inaugurates that new covenant. And the new covenant is characterized really by two chief blessings. 
One, the full and final forgiveness of sins, which purchases, second, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is the giver of the Spirit. That's uh, the idea of a Messiah is that the word actually just means anointed one, the Spirit-filled one, the one who gives the Spirit in full measure. So that everyone united to Jesus is given the gift of the Spirit so that we can have new life, so that we can know God personally. And Jesus uh, gives us that gift through faith so that sinful people like you and like me can have actual saving knowledge of God. And apart from Jesus revealing the Father to us through the Spirit, then we're left in the dark, such that Jesus' own coming is an act of divine grace as he reveals God and the way of salvation. It's a revelation of God, even as it's an act of God to save us. And now we know that Jesus' prophetic, prophetic ministry continues qualified in and through the words of the apostles and prophets, the written scriptures, the Bible, some of the stuff that Chris talked about. So the Bible was written by men, inspired by the Spirit, not inspired like, oh, that's a really good idea, I'm going to write that down, but in such a way that God was speaking in and through the written words of the human authors of scripture, so that we have the very words of God. There's a direct identity between the scriptures and the word of God, such that they perfectly reveal God. They don't comprehensively reveal God because we can never comprehensively know God because he's infinite and we're finite, but we have what he has revealed of himself to us enough so that we can know him as he is and so that we can be saved in and through the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brings that gift of the spirit that allows not only our own hearts to be able to know and to understand the things of the Spirit, but also inspires the words of Scripture. And as we think in closing just about Jesus as prophet, you really can't overstate it. Jesus' uh, identity as the, the prophet, the God-man prophet, is the only way that we can know in its fullness the identity of who God is such that in the incarnation, God makes himself known. The invisible God is made visible. Uh, God's eternal being, obviously, he's always been like this, but it's only kind of hinted at in seed form before. So you, you could try to make the argument from Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, that God is triune. And that's not without merit completely, but that's a shadow. But in the sending of the Son, we have fullness, that we can understand his his character, his being, his essence, uh, and his subsistence, his existence as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we get that in its full radiance uh, as, uh, as we see Christ in the New Testament. So that's Jesus' work as our prophet. Jesus tells us the truth about God. Jesus enables us by the giving of the Spirit to know God and to know Him forever. We're sealed with that Spirit uh, such that Jesus' revelatory power is not only in telling but it's actually in constraining our hearts to be obedient to the message that he gives uh, so that he is not only a prophet, but he's an effective prophet. His words have the very power of God because he is God. And he's also declared to be that great prophet by his perfect humanity too. So that's Jesus's work as our prophet. Now let's think about Jesus's work as priest. Now that is going to be what we spend the majority of our time on. It really is, in some ways, the dominant theme of Jesus' life, insofar as Christ comes to mediate between us and God. So as we think about priests, we need to think about priests and how they function as a, as a part of the biblical storyline. 
We need to think about how the Bible presents the category of priest so that we can understand in fulfillment what Jesus does as a priest. Because we're going to see that he is like the priest of old in some ways, but he fulfills their office and escalates it such that he is the true and better. So the idea is that he is the fulfillment of this, but he's better. He escalates it. He makes it even more than it was before. So the priests of the old, uh, the old covenant uh, that served Israel represented Israel before God by making atonement for their sins and interceding for them. You can look at Hebrews 5 as sort of the, uh, the key text for explaining in a couple of sentences what it is that priests do. They offer gifts and sacrifices before God on behalf of men. They pled Israel's cause before the holy God that dwelled with them. And we understand from the Bible that the Old Testament priesthood was actually deficient which is the deficiency planned in by design, just as the whole old covenant ultimately wasn't able to produce salvation so that it would be eclipsed and fulfilled by that new covenant that Jesus brings in his blood. It was meant to point for our need to uh, our need for rather a new and better high priest. And Jesus is a priest, but he is in the line of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews says not Aaron, uh, such that he has no beginning and no end uh, as we don't have a beginning and end recorded from Melchizedek in the Bible. Uh, Jesus lives forever, so he's not limited by death like those old covenant priests. And maybe most importantly, Jesus had no sins of his own to deal with. So the priests in the Old Testament had to make atonement for their own sins before they could offer atonement for the sins of the people. And we also know that Jesus only had to offer himself once and for all, had an effective sacrifice forever, completely removing sins, whereas the Old old Covenant priests made sacrifices daily, made the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement yearly, and it was always a continual reminder that their sin problems still existed. But Jesus makes one sacrifice for all time and perfects all those who are now being perfected. Really, the book of Hebrews from from chapter 5 through chapter 10 is all about Jesus as priest and how he is a true and better priest. Uh, We know that ultimately Jesus also brings a better covenant in his blood. So it's not like the old covenant. It's a new covenant that we spoke about that brings full and final salvation and the gift of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus represents us as people as a mediator between God and man. Now, following that theme of our priest representing us before God, we can conceive of Jesus's whole priestly work in terms of obedience. So we can think about everything that Jesus does as priest on our behalf as obedience. So as we think about this, we can think of uh, two aspects of Christ's obedience. So we can think of Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. Christ's active obedience and passive obedience. These aren't words you'll see uh, in the scriptures directly, but they encapsulate biblical ideas. Theologians have used them for a long time to be able to uh, fully conceptualize what it means that Jesus uh, is obedient as our priest. And to avoid confusion, active obedience doesn't refer to things that Jesus actively does in being our high priest and passive referring to things that just happen to him as we think about the words active and passive. Active obedience is a way to describe Jesus's positive fulfillment of God's just requirements that he requires of everyone like we thought about made in his image, him earning a perfect obedience, him being perfectly righteous so that we can be righteous by faith in him. And his passive obedience refers to that 
taking the penalty for our lack of perfection, so to speak, uh, for our infraction of God's law. Because we see that God demands both a perfect obedience because he's holy and demands a penalty for any and all failures to be perfect because he's holy. So we need someone to take our penalty for breaking the law, but we also need a perfect record of doing good with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, so on and so forth. So that's where the active and passive obedience comes into play. As we said, Christ's active obedience, referring to that perfect life of obedience and fulfillment of God's law. So in that sense, we don't just need from passive obedience our penalty, the penalty for our infractions taken away and sort of bring us our record back to zero and zero, so to speak. We'll use the NBA for an example. We don't just need to go back to O and O, right? Well, a clean slate. We have to have a perfect 82 and O record. We have to have a, a perfect record before God. And Jesus gives that to us by his active obedience, even while in his passive obedience removes the penalty, removes the, uh, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. So that we have a high priest who does everything that we need of him. Uh, we have a high priest who is able to fulfill all that God requires for us to be made right with him. Uh, and as we, as we think about this, we're going to really hone in on Christ's passive obedience. So that idea of the sacrifice that Jesus makes in our place to create harmony between a holy God and sinful beings as, as he makes atonement for our sins. We're going to think about that, and we're going to think about it because really these uh, facets of the atonement that we're going to discuss stands at the very heart and soul of our hope of the, of the Christian gospel, what we as a church gather around. And so let's, let's, think, um, let's think for a little bit about the atonement, the, the, the sort of the center of Christ's priestly work. And, and as we, before we really jump into those, uh, these different metaphors for the atonement, you'll, you'll sometimes hear people ask if the atonement was the only way that God could save. So they'll say, was it really necessary or was it just something that God did because he thought it was a good idea? And from the Bible, as we reason from it, we see that, yes, it was an absolute necessity that God provide an atonement through the Son ever since he decided that God would enter, ever since God decided he would enter into covenant with fallen human beings. So since God decided in his eternal counsel, not in a, in a temporal way like we think about it, but since God has decided to save, since he is holy, he has to save through the atonement. God didn't have to save, but since he has decided to save, he can only save through the means of the blood of his son, because again, he is holy and he's saving unholy people. Uh, and we really see now where the atonement springs from, such that we see the atonement's source is in the eternal love of God. So God is angry at us in our sin, and yet he is the one that provides the atonement. He, you think about it in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way, that he sent his son to us so that we wouldn't perish but could have eternal life. Even through the work of Christ, even though the work of Christ uh, is, uh, is making God favorable to us and saves us from condemnation, it's actually God's love that provides the means for those things to happen so that God, in love, sends his son for those even that he hates. Um, so that's the, the idea of, of why the atonement is necessary. But now let's think about what the atonement is. What does it mean? Uh, what did Jesus accomplish? And the Bible presents the atonement in at least these four ways, four ways that we're going to camp out on. Uh, first, Jesus's atonement is a sacrifice. So this is probably the most familiar theme 
of Jesus's atonement. Uh, Galatians 3.13, Christ becomes cursed for us in order to save us from the curse of the law. So he takes that curse on himself, removes the curse from us. In Hebrews 7.22 and following, we see Jesus referred to as our great high priest who offers himself in our place to take away our sin. Uh, the idea of expiation, removing our sin, removing our guilt. Our high priest actually offers himself as the sacrificial lamb, such that Jesus was punished in our place even though he had never sinned. He takes away our sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. And then he also pays the penalty for our sin. He takes the curse. He pays the cost. So penal substitutionary atonement, uh, a substitutionary atonement wherein Jesus takes our penalty. He dies in our place, stands condemned in our place, not for sins of his own, but for our sins. And that's at the very heart of the Christian faith. That is the gospel in essence. Uh, Jesus's chief work is to take our place before God, bearing our penalty for us so that we can have eternal life from God. So Jesus's atonement is the ultimate act of sacrifice that's once and for all. Uh, that never is to be repeated, and that is effective, absolutely effective, for the salvation of his people. So that's Jesus' atonement as sacrifice. The second thing I want to talk about is Jesus' atonement as a propitiation. Propitiation. The word propitiation is probably most famously used in Romans 3, 25 through 26. Uh, the word propitiation really just means a wrath-bearing substitute, uh, so that not only does Jesus pay the penalty for our sins, but he removes God's active wrath from over against us, such that God doesn't just impersonally demand a penalty because his law has been broken, like some kind of arbitrary system. Since uh, the law of God is an expression of God's own character and sin against him is, is really an attempt to try to dethrone God and question his character, then his response to that is wrath. It's his act of anger and hatred towards us uh, because of our sin. Uh, the wrath of God stems from the holiness, justice, and ultimately worth of God. Um, and we've offended his name. And God demands, again, that that price be paid, but also uh, promises an eternity of that wrath against those uh, that, that he hates. We can use that language that God hates sinners, actually, in Psalm 11, 5. Um, and propitiation is what uh, satisfies God's anger so that he no longer has that enmity, that hatred towards us, uh, but all of that justice has been satisfied on Christ. So when we look at Romans 3 again, we see 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve and are under God's condemnation. His wrath hangs over our head. There's nothing that we can do in ourselves to remove that wrath. There's no amount of good deeds that could, could take that away. But he, Paul, points out that our hope is that God sent Christ to redeem us through his blood by being a propitiation for our sin. So that the wrath of God that's being revealed, Paul says in, in Romans 1.18, is satisfied in Christ because Jesus bore all that wrath on the cross. Jesus suffered for an eternity in hell's worth of wrath for us. So that now we'll never taste a single drop of that wrath that we deserve. So God shows his love for us, not by relaxing his holiness and letting sin have a pass, but having his son to die in our place to take away that anger and to satisfy that justice so that we can look at God and declare him to be just and the justifier of the one who has turned from their sins and placed their faith in Christ. So that we have on the cross God's love and his justice meeting together, not canceling each other out, but being on full display. Uh, such that Christ's atonement, and especially this idea of Jesus' atonement as propitiation, fully, uh, fully displays God's 
attributes and character. So Jesus' atonement is a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, wherein he takes away the wrath that we deserve. Now, third, Jesus' atonement is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Uh, that's a third way the Bible explains Jesus' atonement. We need to be reconciled with God, simply put. It's true that reconciliation can be thought of as a two-way street. So we hate God and God hated us, so to speak. And we have to have that, that bridge mended. Uh, but our opposition to God, though it has to be overcome, as we'll think about uh, when Chris talks about the, the plan of redemption, the focus on the, uh, the Bible's focus is on God being reconciled to us. So the reason for alienation between us and God is our sin. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. So that in reconciliation, we have Jesus removing the grounds for God's hostility toward us and thus instituting the way for us to have a right relationship with him. And as we think about reconciliation, I want to highlight a few quick things to, to guard against the, some misunderstandings that we might run into with the idea of reconciliation, since it is a very, uh, it's a very common word uh, that we use today. First, we don't want to push the metaphor of reconciliation too far and think as if God and us were two equal parties that had come back together so that uh, we have both done something wrong and we sort of need to lay down our arms and, and come together to, for an agreement. We know that God is God and we are us and we've sinned against God and God is our king and we've, we've committed that act of cosmic treason like we thought about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but God shows us so much grace because he, the offended, takes the initiative to create reconciliation with the offenders. And, and a second thing, reconciliation in this sense is forensic or objective and, and as opposed to being subjective, the kind of feeling of reconciliation or uh, the fruit of reconciliation. Uh, because there is that subjective work of our being reconciled to God and having fellowship with him and then to others, uh, to those uh, who have also been redeemed by the blood of Christ uh, because of what he's accomplished. But here we're, we're thinking more of a status. We're focusing on what Jesus does to change our status from alienated to reconciled. However, we don't want to overturn or, 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 or not show forth the fruit of that reconciling work by not being reconciled to one another. So it's not that that idea of subjective reconciliation or horizontal reconciliation isn't important but it is a fruit, it's, a, it's an accomplishment of that vertical reconciliation so that uh, Jesus' recon, uh, reconciling work is to remove the, the grounds of God's alienation towards us. And that's the foundation of our being reconciled to one another as well. And then for the finally on this section, Jesus' atonement is redemption. Redemption in the New Testament is a marketplace term such that uh, you might use it for someone paying a price to gain something back. Jesus' death purchases us for God. You see that language all over the place. Mark 10.45, most prominently, the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's caused many in church history to ask the question, who is Jesus paying a ransom to? And we don't have time, unfortunately, to survey all the historical views because there are all things from wonderful to wild and wacky. Uh, but... They have said, uh, some have said, one popular theory is that Jesus had to pay Satan to convince him to let us go free from his ownership. Um, and it's better to say, rather, with the Bible, that Jesus pays the ransom, covers the cost of our sin to God himself. So Jesus pays the penalty, pays the fee, so to speak, to redeem us back from our sin 
to God. And you'll notice this again, that God is providing everything that he requires. Everything that God demands of us to be saved, he provides as a gift. Now, even though the idea that Jesus pays off Satan is not a good one, some of the motivations behind such a theory shouldn't be thrown away. So it, it probably stems from trying to deal honestly with a couple of texts, but not placing in them their proper biblical and theological categories. So we do want to affirm that Jesus displays even his kingly power when he dies as our high priest. His death does disarm the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and purchases the redemption and reconciliation of all things. Uh, it's focused at the beginning on us, but we know that our redemption uh, in the new heavens and the new earth expands to all the creation as we read about it, even in a text like Romans 8. Um, now, before we turn to Christ's work as our king, uh, we should think about the other duty that priests have to fulfill. So we know and talk and think about most often Jesus's mediatorial work. He provides mediation, what we spent most of our time on. He stands as a go-between between us and God, God being holy, us being sinful, sort of bridges that gap. But just like an Old Testament priest, Jesus also does the work of intercession. Jesus not only dies for his people, he prays for them as well. He doesn't just save us and say, all right, cool, see you later. But he is always pleading for us, always living to make intercession for us. Says that John can say we have an advocate before the Father. And we still need that or we still need that intercession rather because we still sin. So it's not as if Jesus continues to die. Jesus continues to be sacrificed so that we can make uh, to make uh, so that we can uh, that's a good idea, Chris. So that we can um, can be saved. Instead, Jesus' death is continually applied. That once and for all sacrifice continues to be powerful for us to uh, to be in the presence of God through Christ, and then also to be sanctified. Uh, so God, we know, will be pleased with us for as long as he's pleased with Jesus. So this is the reason why Protestants have always denied things uh, like praying through saints or, uh, or Mary, for instance, because the idea of intercession and mediation, uh, intercession, the prayers, and the mediation, the, the making atonement, have always gone together such that if you pray to someone else, then you're calling on in some senses, if you're going to be, um, if you're going to be consistent, their, their mediatorial uh, merits as well. We only have one mediator, our faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we, before we move on to thinking about Jesus as King, any questions, any questions or comments at this point? Type, type, type. Anything. I'll give just a couple of minutes. I know it can take a minute to type it up. Anybody? Maybe just a minute to breathe, if nothing else. Any questions about that? Jacob, Honeycutt, I, I knew you were going to ask me a certain question, so I didn't address it. Um, and I'm going to leave that to, well, that's not the one. 
yes, Christ's act of obedience is imputed to us in, as opposed to imparted such that what, what serves as the basis of our right standing before God is Jesus's perfect righteousness. And that's it. Uh, such that our being declared righteous is on the base of something completely outside of us, only in Jesus's work. Uh, it's imputed to us as if it were own, our own. It's credited to our account from him. Um, so that on the flip side, you have imparted righteousness so that it's a kind of mingling of our works and Jesus's works. But the doctrine of salvation, according to the scriptures, is that we are saved by Jesus's good works and those alone. And that is that idea of his act of obedience. So his perfect fulfilling of God's requirements. He fulfills those on our behalf so that we are declared just from the outside. When we put our faith in Christ, we are just and we are as declared as just as we will ever be. And then after that, we start to become more righteous. We start to look the part, so to speak. But even that, even those good works, even given to us by the Spirit and worked out by the Spirit that are a gift of God's grace, are in any way uh, the, the reason that we stand justified before God. We don't work to be justified. We work because we have been justified. Uh, we don't fight for the W, like KB says, but we fight from the W, right? All my hip-hop heads know what I'm talking about. How do you cut that? wasn't the question I thought you would ask, uh, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. Any other questions? As Honeycutt racks his brain to what I thought he was going to ask. In the meantime, can anybody tell me what state this is on my For the Church mug? You will win absolutely nothing if you tell me. Who is KB? Oh, my gosh, Brad. Uh, I'll send you some stuff. Great Christian hip-hop artist. Wonderful. Um, Massachusetts, ding, 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 ding. That's right. That's right, Mr. Honeycutt. Um, the difference between imputed and imparted, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, so essentially, impute, uh, the best way to think about it would to be that it, it is given to us to sort of, it's, uh, it's credited to our account. So our account is empty and our account shows to be full because it's full of Jesus's obedience. So that Jesus's obedience stands as our obedience. So we're not justified by anything that we do. We're justified by, by something someone else did. And the way that we access that is by trusting in Jesus alone so that we're saved by believing, by having faith in on that day, our, our salvation being dependent on everything that Jesus did. Imparted kind of means it, he gives it to us and our righteousness then is is an act of God's grace, but it still leaves, uh, it still leaves, yeah, infused, that's good, Jason, yeah, imparted, uh, also called infused, um, it leaves a kind of mix of Jesus's grace-inspired good works, but ultimately, there's still that shred of us that's responsible for our salvation before God. Uh, that's probably a little bit of a crass way to put it, uh, coming from a Roman Catholic perspective, but that's in essence what it boils down to. Um, we, we have, um, we believe that we are saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes completely from outside of us and counts as our own before God. And we're, we're stamped, justified, not condemned, uh, reconciled to God. 
Whereas in the Roman Catholic view, you can almost really, you can really never know if you are justified because you're in that process of having that grace imparted or infused to you through baptism and the sacrament um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Brad, I don't know if you saw that. It speaks in part to whether or not we become righteous in essence or reckoned with an alien righteousness. So essentially, do we have to become good people before God says justified? Or are we justified, as Paul says, when we are ungodly, when we and ourselves are not just perfectly, uh, but we are called just because Jesus is just for us? Uh, that's the idea of an alien righteousness that comes from outside of us. It doesn't have anything in us. So there's nothing inherent in us that serves as the basis of our being made right with God. And there won't be ever. We're always uh, pleading Jesus's blood and righteousness, as the, uh, as the great hymn says. Um, yeah, that idea of justification and sanctification collapse. So justification being declared right before God on the basis of what Jesus has done alone. And sanctification, that process of us actually becoming righteousness or becoming righteous, that sometimes those two ideas kind of collapse into one another so that our becoming more like Jesus kind of sneaks its way into our confidence uh, before God of why we should be uh, justified. And obviously that's, uh, that's never going to... Uh, that's never going to give us much assurance because if we have any self-awareness, we'll know that we are unworthy. That's the, the thing that really did Luther in for our benefits, of course, his own, where he was trying to participate in the sacraments. He was trying to uh, sort of take that infused grace and make himself justifiable, uh, but he saw that he never could. And that's whenever it led to that breakthrough, that the righteous will live by their faith, that we need a gift of God. We need a righteousness that, that doesn't come from law-keeping, as Philippians 3 says, but comes from faith in Christ for his law-keeping, not our own. Um, anything else on that? And Murray's chapter is killer on that. Redemption accomplished and applied. John Murray, uh, that idea of... Uh, um, uh, yeah, that idea of justification. Uh, Brad asks, why are some Christians reluctant to speak of propitiation? You know, um, so you... in a in a not historical, but sort of back in the 60s, you had a C.H. Dodd, a biblical scholar that wanted to translate uh, the, uh, the language in Romans 3 differently to really highlight the idea of expiation. So he wanted to say, yes, um, Jesus takes away our sin, takes away our guilt, but didn't want to say that Jesus was a propitiation, a wrath-bearing substitute. He was worried that it it seemed too much like a, a, a pagan deity that needed to be appeased uh, and that was kind of capricious and always needed to, to sort of have the, their favor won back by these sacrifices. Um, and he thought that that was too lowly to speak of God in that way. Uh, you see even today, the uh, hymn in Christ alone, some denominations uh, wanted to change uh, the, the line when on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I don't remember exactly what they wanted to change to. The love of God was magnified, I think maybe it was, but wanted to avoid the idea. Ultimately, all of this is, a, is, a, is an aversion to the idea that God is actively angry with us, that God's uh, opinion of us in that sense needs to be changed, that he has to be made favorable to us. Uh, it's a downplaying of really our sin and God's character. Uh, such that we want to think that God has to deal with sin in some way, but he's not all that bothered by it. Uh, that sin isn't all that bad to have this uh, bloody, wrath-absorbing sacrifice be the only means by which we can be made right with God. So it is really an aversion to speaking as God to God as he is and to speak 
about us as we are as well. Um, but the church has always uh, affirmed that this understanding of Jesus coming for us and for our salvation, bearing the wrath of God uh, with his death. That idea of penal substitution goes back, obviously, as far as the New Testament, but there are uh, easy uh, examples to find in the church fathers. Think of the uh, epistle to Diognetus, for example. I wish I had that pulled up. Uh, some really uh, vivid language about justification and penal substitution in some of those early documents. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on at this point. Um, and think about Jesus' work as king. And go ahead, if you have questions about any of it, go ahead and fire them off. Um, I, will, uh, I can address them at the, at the end of the time, but let's make sure that we get through this material. Let's think of Jesus as king. Um, uh, just because Jesus said that his kingdom isn't of this world doesn't mean at all that he's a lesser uh, type of ruler. In fact, it really is quite the opposite. Jesus' right to rule is both innate and earned. So that as God, nothing that was created was created apart from him, and thus nothing is left outside of his sovereignty, right? He is the ruler of all things because he's God. But then also as the perfect man, his death and his resurrection earn him and demonstrate him to, to have the right to sit on the throne of the universe and declare mine. Everything is Jesus's. Again, by virtue of what he always has been and on virtue of what he has accomplished by his person and work, his incarnation. Jesus' kingship means that he is a royal prophet and a royal priest. Such that, again, you can't, you can't tear them apart from one another and bifurcate them. And we know that Jesus uh, should be king uh, because we followed that biblical narrative. We I can harken back to 2 Samuel 7, where we remember that God promised salvation through a Davidic king who would rule on David's throne forever. And actually, you go as far back to Genesis 17, when God's making covenant with Abraham. 17.6, God tells Abraham that the line of salvation is going to be a royal line, saying kings will come from you. Israel is actually left in the Old Testament to anticipate the coming of a Messiah whose identity can't be divorced from his royalty. But of course, as we get into the Gospels, we understand that the, the Jews at the time had actually misread their Bibles, many of them. And by the time that Jesus came, he wasn't what they expected. He actually wasn't what they wanted. They rejected him. Uh, in, in their desire for a political salvation from foreign occupation, they sort of missed the point. They missed that Jesus comes to inaugurate a kingdom, not through uh, initially his rule uh, and his crushing of his enemies, but through the cross. Jesus' rule begins in the hearts of men and women as he lays down his royal prerogative and dies in the place of his would-be subjects so that we can participate in that kingdom. Now, the resurrection and the ascension are kind of the trumpet blast announcing Jesus' own coronation. If Jesus had remained dead, sort of what we thought about last week, then we would be right to ignore his claims over us. They would be nonsense because he's dead. But since Jesus rose from the dead, he demands our absolute loyalty. Jesus, the risen king, demands the obedience of all living things, all nations, even Satan and his own demons included. And since Jesus is sovereign over death, we know that he is sovereign over everything. Jesus is the king. Now, we have to remember that Jesus' resurrection is a saving act as well. So I think that if our elders uh, took a poll, the things that people most often leave out in their member interview of sharing the gospel to, uh, to the person they're doing the interview with uh, would be, one, they'll probably leave out repentance. It's probably number one. And number two, they probably leave out the resurrection. So uh, that they might have to be prodded. Well, after Jesus died, 
was there anything else? You know, is he still in the grave? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 the resurrection, the resurrection. But the resurrection is absolutely central for our salvation as well, because it marks the inauguration of another age, a new age, a new dawn, the beginning of the consummation of God's kingdom through the power of the Spirit who applies that new covenant we thought about. Really, the resurrection is the way that we can know we are justified. Paul even says um, that he was raised for our justification. That's how we know that the cross we know that's how we know that the cross uh, worked, that it accomplished what, uh, what it intended to do. Uh, I remember, I think Matt Chandler uh, said that that was sort of the, the, uh, the, the check clearing, uh, that the check didn't bounce. It went through, uh, that the payment is accepted by God on our behalf. Through the resurrection, both our spiritual and physical resurrections are ensured. So if we have been uh, buried with him, we will also be raised. If we died with him, we'll be raised with him as well. We'll rise again bodily because he rose again bodily. His ascension allows him to take his heavenly seat. And do you know why it is that you sit down after you have a long day of work? It's because you're finished with your work. Your work is complete. Jesus's work is complete. He has sat down because there's no more redemption to accomplish. That doesn't mean he's inactive, but he's not active in accomplishing redemption. There is nothing left and our salvation that needs to be accomplished is now just unfolding as he applies its benefits to us. He's interceding for us now, as we thought about, until he returns in glory to dwell with us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So the idea, uh, or the question now is, where do we see Jesus's kingdom today? So we think of living in a world ravaged by uh, invisible disease. Uh, we see only, it wasn't as if the world just now uh, kind of became a messed up place. We see uh, abortion and, uh, and genocide and racism and so on and so forth. Where do we see the inbreaking kingdom that Jesus brought? Uh, where do we see the beginnings of what we will know for eternity as God's rule and righteousness and peace? Uh, it's true in a sense that it's invisible. So the kingdom of God doesn't have borders, so to speak, and it's not made up of a nationality. It doesn't have walls and it, and it doesn't advance through diplomacy and the power of the sword. But it is absolutely wrong to say that the kingdom Jesus brings is even now completely invisible. It's true that Christ rules in the heart uh, of those that he's made his own. So it's a spiritual kingdom. And you can't, strictly speaking, see the gospel realities of justification and so on. So we can't see the moment someone repents and believes the gospel. We can't see the, the switch from condemnation to justified happen with our eyes. They're invisible realities. But the kingdom of God is absolutely visible. Where? In the local church. In fact, probably the most overlooked aspect of Christ's work as king is that chartering of the local church to represent his interest on earth that we see in Matthew 16 and 18. We see King Jesus giving the local church the, the keys of the kingdom to have final earthly authority on his behalf. He delegates that authority not to the government, not to the pope, but to local churches, gathered local churches, so that we see the kingdom of God displayed in our lives together. We see the picture of the Sermon on the Mount every, every time that we're able to gather together and throughout our weeks as we encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works. We are that new people that Jesus' resurrection and sending of the Spirit proclaimed that this new age has dawned. We're the first fruits of his resurrection as we await full consummation. Because we know, friends, that the, the full visibility of God's kingdom will come soon enough. So that heaven is where we go when we die, and it's glorious to be present with the Lord. We don't want to downplay like heaven is, uh, is, uh, is, some kind of, uh, is some kind of consolation prize. But it is not our final resting place. 
It's the new heavens and the new earth that our king is preparing for us so that all the earth will one day bow in glad submission as God punishes his enemies and dwells with his children. And yet in this sense, God's kingdom still won't have borders. It's impossible to measure the borders of water on the sea, right? Because waters and seas are coextensive. So God's glory will permeate all in all. Uh, it will be, everything will be dominated by the, the reality of Jesus's kingship as we all gather around his throne to worship him for all eternity. And our worship and knowledge of God and, 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 and a mission of his authority over us will only increase and increase and increase and increase. Uh, it will be perfect, uh, but ever increasing as we think about eternity in heaven. So that's Jesus's work as king secures all of this, this eternity enjoying God uh, and ultimately uh, secures the, the display of eternally God's glory. So any other questions? Any other questions? I'll take that as a compliment, Brad. <laughs> I think you can, uh, you can always, if, uh, if Spurgeon said, which I don't know if he did, you could make a beeline from every text to the cross. I think you can do that responsibly given the the right hermeneutical ways uh you can preach the gospel christian hedonism and church membership from every text and if you don't then you know what are you doing like the other day we were reading i'm just filling time while you guys type your questions so type your questions don't worry about me uh we were reading in leviticus how uh this cat had to get stoned because of his transgressions and did the leader stone him no, they did not. The whole congregation of Israel had to stone him. So if you think about Paul building his, uh, basing some of his ecclesiology on the fulfillment of the idea of uh, the Old Testament law's requirement of two or three witnesses, uh, then you see here the, the need for uh, the whole congregation to purge the, the evil from their midst, same way as we deal with church discipline as a congregation, not just our leaders. Keys of the kingdom. Um, anything, anything. Why do you think Christ in his role as king uh, is underplayed relative to Christ as priest, and why does it matter? Um, you know, I think I guess it depends on the circles you run in. Um, so when I was at Washtenaw, actually, it was probably the opposite, uh, such that we talked a lot about kingdom. Kingdom has become a big deal, um, and uh, Jesus uh, ruling and reigning and, and bringing the kingdom through social transformation so that we can go out and sort of paint the town red for Jesus and plant gardens and bring the kingdom, all that kind of stuff. That was really in vogue. I think that we do probably in our circles tend to uh, talk less about Jesus as king. And it might be because we are sort of trying to course correct to uh, thinking about Jesus as priest. And, and in some ways that really is the center or the central metaphor, or at least Jesus as a penal substitute is that kind of main point. Uh, sort of the, the high watermark of scripture, but, um, but they can't be divorced from his kingly work. And, uh, and we see that Jesus uh, in that act of dying as a priest is, uh, is, um, is acting as a, acting as a king. So we want to, we don't want to just uh, to take the salvation that Christ brings while ignoring the authority uh, of, of Jesus as our King so that we can say, all right, great. Jesus is our high priest. And we can kind of give into a, uh, an individualism, a consumerism. Let's take the priest stuff and, uh, and run, but we ignore the calls to repentance. We ignore the, uh, the calls 
to uh, to submit to his ruler, uh, his his leadership, his rule. Uh, primarily, we uh, will 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 balk at the idea of having to join a church because we don't actually want Jesus as our king. We want to take the good things that he can give us as our priest, uh, but we don't want to have to do what he says. Uh, that might be part of it. Uh, yeah, Jesus is king. Cuts across easy believism. Absolutely, um, it, it, you can have a nominal. That's where you get some of the. Um, that's where you get some of the the old distinction between having Jesus as your savior and Jesus as your Lord. So you might have uh, heard people tell their testimonies like this. You might have told your testimony like this, that uh, when you were five, you had Jesus as your savior. And it wasn't until you were like 20, when you were in college, you had some kind of experience and Jesus became your Lord. Uh, you'd have these, um, I don't remember if maybe they're from the Schofield reference, but I don't know, but you have these uh, illustrations of, of uh, kind of you being, on the throne, but you're still somehow like participating. You're saved, but you're saved, but you're a carnal Christian so that uh, you are still on the throne, but you want to be the, the ultimate category is to be saved, but Jesus be on the throne as well. But the New Testament teaches when you are saved, Jesus is on the throne. Doesn't mean you're not trying to wrestle him off of it sometimes, unfortunately, in our sin, but there's no biblical category of someone who has Christ as their Savior and not their Lord. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They're the flip side of the same coin. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. Um, Honeycutt says, how does the view of Christ as King depend on and change with one's view of eschatology? Um, yeah. Um, I guess, I guess the timing changes, uh, depending on your eschatology. So some will say that Jesus in one sense, like isn't King yet. Um, so, uh, when he talks in the sermon on the Mount, that uh, that experience for God's people is all future. So in the millennial kingdom, uh, you will uh, you'll experience Christ as king. Probably in post-millennialism, you're going to have an optimistic view of the kingdom expanding and transforming society. That's not all post-millennials, but, uh, but oftentimes you see sort of that idea of, uh, of cultural transformation. Um, and... Uh, I think that the proper idea is to, to think about Christ's kingdom uh, being inaugurated with his coming and uh, being further inaugurated in his death and resurrection. So secure, but still not yet completely fulfilled, not completely actualized. Uh, so you have that idea of inaugurated eschatology so that it's here, but it's not here in its fullness yet as it won't be until Christ returns. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think that, you probably you probably won't get much quarrel with the idea that Christ is this king who brings these things uh, to be fair to those other views uh, that I don't personally hold. Um, but it would it would probably change how you think that that kingship uh, is played out and when you think it'll play out. Uh, and we'll get into some more. We'll survey the views when I have the arduous task of explaining all of uh, eschatology in uh, in an hour. I'll note that Chris made the schedule. <laughs> It'll be fun. I haven't really gotten to, uh, I haven't really gotten to look as much into the topic as I was like, so that will be fun. Any other questions before I know it's, um, it's 10 five and we want to all be able to prepare, uh, to listen to, uh, Brad teach. Uh, no, we're not listening to Brad teach. We're listening to Trey teach, which we also want to prepare for. He called me and talked to me uh, like, uh, yeah, Friday for like 20 minutes, it's gonna be really, really good meditation on God's goodness, uh, really good. Anything else, anything else? Honeycutt, you still haven't asked my question, uh, but maybe it wasn't meant to be. 
Any other questions? We'll, we'll just give it a couple, uh, couple of minutes here. Good call, Chris. Triple E, use this to end his teaching with a rap. Will you? I will not. Um, I will not, but I can, but I just won't do it. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna have it reserved or preserved for posterity. Um, no, I'm a capable rapper, but only for other people's stuff. Brad, we really have to get you on some KB stuff. Trip is good. I know some of your other habits, um, like Shy. We could talk about that later. You do like beautiful eulogy though, so that's a that's a credit to you. But yeah, with KB, just simple. KB right there. Good stuff. Good dang stuff. If Logan McCollum's listening to this, he knows. He knows. Um, all right, guys. If there's not anything else, I don't want to keep you guys here too long. Um, but I hope that uh, this has been helpful. Probably a lot of things you've thought about before, but man, the thing about being a Christian is that you just really need to remember them a bunch of times again. I mean, I probably would do well to run through this in an hour when we're unpacking our house and uh, Lord willing, welcoming a, a dog into our house. So I'm going to need to remember that Jesus is sovereign over all things. Um, but yeah, it, so much of the Christian life is just revisiting these things again and again and again and again. And, uh, and they never cease to be amazing as we think about our sin before God and what Jesus does. Uh, this recording, Nathan will be available uh, on the website. I think it comes to the podcast feed as well. So I send this to Ryan Martin and he throws it up probably this afternoon. He's uh, he's quick with it, no doubt. Uh, so you can find it on the website, probably under, I think it's like ABF and conference audio. I think that's right, Stephen. And uh, it'll probably be in a systematic theology category, but it'll come out on the, on the podcast feed, wherever you imbibe your, uh, your podcast from. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Uh, let me pray for us and pray for as we listen to, uh, to Trey here in a sec. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus that uh, meets everything that we need to be saved. We thank you that he has brought us effectively to you, that he didn't just make us save a bull, but through his life, death, and resurrection saved us uh, so that we give all glory to you, all glory uh, for our salvation. And we ask that you would help us to, to relish these things, to be humbled by these things, to live holy lives because of these things. And we pray that they would be in the front of our mind as we think about your goodness to us here in Psalm 92. We pray that uh, Trey would be encouraged and have his affections inflamed by what he's preaching today, that, and that we would also overflow in praise for your goodness, even in times that are tough. And Father, we do pray these things uh, by the power of your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.